Have you ever thought back on your life and noticed that there are these small moments that led you to where you are today? I'm Alan Brooks from Building Momentum. In my new show, Breadcrumbs, I trace the pivotal moments of people's lives that lead them to where they are today. That I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. In the sunshine in this leather couch, I found my two big passions. I truly believe as an adult, I'm just trying to recreate that moment. It turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And that changed my life. Through storytelling and conversation, our show traces the circuitous trail of how the creatives and intellectuals of today got to where they are. On Breadcrumbs, we'll pick up these crumbs that were left behind and see how they led us to where we are today and leading us to who we're still becoming. Take a listen to Breadcrumbs, an exciting, independently run new podcast. So when I was 10 years old, I was sitting at the dinner table with what feels in my memory was my entire family. And I was sitting watching my brother David at the head of the table. And all he was doing is cracking everyone up in like the most extraordinary way. And just every single thing he did was crushing. And while I was amused by it or laughing at it or loving it, this little moment took place in which I kind of stepped back and looked around at everybody's faces and everybody just like in tears and slapping the table. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. I'm Alan Brooks, and this is my podcast, Breadcrumbs. I talk to professionals and creatives from all over the world about the most pivotal moments in their lives. So let's go break some bread. I am so lucky to share time today with Adrian Todd Zuniga. He's a novelist, a video game writer, and the creator and host of Literary Deathmatch, a literary reading competition where no one wins and everybody has a weird, fun time. He is an awesome guest. He is a friend of mine who has one of the most interesting lives and careers of anyone I know. He's a writer predominantly. He's written novels and video games. So Adrian Todd was nominated for a BAFTA for a video game that he wrote, which if you didn't know, the Madden football games for a couple of years had storylines, mostly because of Adrian Todd. Uh, and his childhood friend, who is the first breadcrumb, He's awesome. And he's also the creator of this really cool thing called Literary Deathmatch, which is just a super awesome night of storytelling and competition with no prizes. Literary Deathmatch. It's like, whose line is it anyway? And American Idol had a baby. And it's awesome. And no one actually wins. But we all do in our hearts. Let's see. I met Adrian Todd through Madden, actually, in like 2008 or nine. Video game reviews and writers were really early in the podcast game writ large the one-up family of magazines had a ton of video game podcasts out there one of which was the sports game guys sports anomaly podcast which adrian todd hosted at that time known only as todd zaniga and he hosted that with brian intahar and i i don't even like sports video games i'm not good at them I don't play them, but Adrian Todd and Brian's energy was so much fun to be around in this like weird new medium of radio you can take with you. And so I was listening to the podcast and 
they started a Madden league. So it was like, well, I'll play online football every week to hang out, potentially hang out with these people. And I got to play a couple of games with Adrian. We chat through there. I got a job very shortly thereafter at the Kennedy Center and got them to put up a literary deathmatch and just kind of ended up being in each other's orbits a lot and, and became friends through that. What's really cool is that the breadcrumbs that we talked about, these like moments of his life, were so well tied back to what he's doing now. There's such an easy line where you can see, you know, you can listen to him talk about observing his very, very busy dining room table as a child and then to what he's done with Literary Deathmatch. And you can look at what he's done with Mike, his best friend. You can easily see the kind of lines of connection to to what he's been doing professionally. A really beautiful lens to listen to this conversation between myself and Adrian Todd is this idea that sometimes we're lucky enough to find creative partnerships when we're really young. There's no way to know at 10 that this person is going to be my creative partner, but Adrian was able to find this connection with somebody at 10, and he's been able to have that connection with that same person at 40, and that is so special and so rare. This conversation is so lovely. I love Adrian Todd. He's so funny, so interesting. His perspective on the world is just awesome. Go seek out his work. And I can't wait for you all to hear this. So please let us know what you think and let's break some bread together. I grew up in Florissant, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis. So when I was 10 years old, I was sitting at the dinner table with what feels in my memory was my entire family. And I'm the last of eight kids, so that that's a pretty uh, extraordinary feat. But I just remembered that we were all there, and I was sitting watching my brother David at the head of the table. I don't know why he was at the head of the table. Sounds fun. But in my memory, he's at the head of the table. And all he was doing is cracking everyone up in like the most extraordinary way. And he was doing this thing with his hands where he was making like a fish face. Just every single thing he did was crushing. And while I was amused by it or laughing at it or loving it, this little moment took place in which I kind of stepped back and looked around at everybody's faces and everybody just like in tears and slapping the table. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. Like that's, that's amazing. This is a, this is a superpower. And about a year later, I was playing for the fluorescent flyers. That's flyers with a PH L-Y-E-R-S for absolutely no reason that anybody should uh, care to understand. And I was the worst player on the team. My level of bad was I hit the ball once the entire season and it rolled foul down the third baseline. But I loved baseball. I just, I, to this day, I love baseball. It has this deep meaning for me. And part of it is what happened that day. And that is while I was sitting on the bench, instead of playing right field, and missing the ball or being in the game and just, you know, standing there taking three pitches instead of swinging feebly at them. The star player on the team, whose name was Mike Young, he came to sit on the bench as well. And it was rare for us to be on the bench together because the best players usually in the game. But on that day, he was. And we didn't have many players that day. And so I remember distinctly it was just us on the bench. It was just this hot summer day. This dude who's like 
my age, 11, blonde hair, blue eyes, and taller than me. And we're sitting there and we've never really met, which is quite an extraordinary thing considering we're on a baseball team together. But again, he was always in the game. And so I'm sitting there and we just start making fun of every single thing that you could ever imagine, just in that dumb, innocent, 11-year-old way. Um, we're making fun of the coach's haircut. We're making fun of the right fielder on the other team who we decide is worse than me. Um, and we're just cracking each other up. And I, I, I'd never had that sort of interaction that was just like a spark where we're just like, really going at it but in this i don't know it was this weirdly comfortable thing in which we just kept doing the best kind of comedy which is somebody makes a comment and you get the full support and somebody like adds the comment and then that person takes that tennis smash back and is like okay i'm gonna add a little something and i'm gonna hit it back to you what are you gonna do and we entertained ourselves for it felt like forever in my memory it, it just holds a serious weight but at the end of that half inning or two innings or however long we were together, we were like, hey, let's hang out as 11-year-old kids would. And, and that's how Mike and I met and became serious best friends. And I had had a best friend before that. His name was Eric. And Eric was a sweet, goofy nerd. But Mike, in my mind, was cool. Like, he just was cooler. He was funny in a way that felt crazy and wild and he inspired in me what I love that people inspire me which is to be funnier and weirder. Mike and I used to play this video game called Baseball Stars with Eric. Like at first it was like a a triumvirate of friendship. And in this game Baseball Stars what happened is when you won games you earn money and you could spend them on your players to make them faster, to make them hit the ball farther, to make them better defensively or you could add to their prestige level. And the prestige meant that you would, you would dump points in, uh, dump money to have points to spin up prestige. And then when you won games, you would make more money, which Mike and I thought was the dumbest thing because wouldn't you want a guy who hit the ball farther than like a shiny object on your team? But Eric, he always put prestige on his players. And yet another bonding experience between Mike and I, we just thought this was the funniest, dumbest thing. And so we started making fun of Eric for it. And then at one point, Mike was like, hey, quit steeging up your players. And from that moment, the word stege or steeging became basically the linchpin of our friendship. As Eric was phased out, stege was in. It was one of the more colossal words in my life. And, and we used to use it for everything. It was kind of like Smurf would be used in, if you ever watch that cartoon. So if we wanted to play video games, it would be like, hey, you want to come over and stege? It would be, what's up, Steege? <laughs> what are you doing? Nothing, just Steegin'. I mean, it was really like this dumb thing. And what was amazing about it and what I loved about our relationship and what I have loved since is that we were able to be so tight-knit and so supportive of one, one another's dumb ideas and dumb comedy that we actually drew people in to be part of it. So when my mom would say Steege, we also thought that was the funniest thing in the entire world. Or when it would just sort of perpetuate out from there. Yeah, that, it just was ridiculous. And what's wild, you know, this, this weird chance meeting, the worst player and the best player, 
we now are writing partners and we've worked together on long shot that was a playable movie by ea sports that appeared in madden 18 featured mahershala ali who's now gone on because of our great work to win two academy awards and we also wrote the sequel together and hopefully some fun announcement about a feature film will be coming soon but it it is pretty wild to think of how just this small spark that becomes this growing thing and then all of a sudden 30 years later stage lives on pretty stages so i think what's really interesting about it is that you came from the like diametrically opposite origin story that i did right you were one of eight and i am one of one and that of a you know i grew up as a only child to a single mother Right. But the origin story of my best friend is almost identical in that, like, I found my person in that same way. Right. We clicked in a way that was like we weren't exactly the same person. We weren't into the same exact stuff. And we were on opposite sides of the skill set. Like he was super into baseball as it, as it happens to be. And I was not good. But he and I clicked the same way. But so did you find like – I would just love to hear about what it's like to be one of eight and like finding your people outside of that already massive community of people that you're around all the time. Because usually like for me it was fine. It was about finding my cho- family of choice. Right, right. I So – by being one of eight, we had a very calamitous household. I've just written a, a TV pilot about this period of my life when Mike and I were 13. And it sort of cemented this idea that Mike and I were sort of like this, it was almost like an eye of the storm situation where we were each other's stability while our home lives had all kinds of different things. I was more lower middle class, eight kids. He was an only child, uh, had more money, but kind of a not the greatest stepfather. Yeah. And for me, how it worked in my family dynamic was that by being the youngest, everybody took an interest in me because they f- they felt like, I think they felt like they could put their imprint on me. To give you a oh, totally asinine example, my brother, which I brought up a couple years ago to him, and I'll tell you the punchline of this afterwards, but he taught me, he said, if you want to be cool, you have to walk with your hand with the middle fingers separated on each hand as you walk. Like you're yeah. doing Vulcan death grips, walking down the street. Or yeah, not, the, the, exactly. Not. Like you don't have to show it off. That's just how you should hold your hand. So there was a dinner when I was with some brothers and sisters, and I, I went around the table. Actually, very specifically, it was, it was the dinner after my mother had passed, and we were all together. And I went around the table telling everyone a story about them from my perspective. And the story I told him was about how he told me to hold his hands, which he had no memory of. And I was like, yeah, now that I think about it, it's the dumbest. What a dumb. What a, that's terribly dumb. Anyway. How old are you and your brother separated? We are seven years apart. And my next oldest sister is five years older. Oh, wow. And yeah. So I, so I definitely was a mistake, which only came out when I was, I think I was about to leave for college. My dad took me to Outback Steakhouse, you know, manly dinners. And I was like, Dad, you guys have denied this my whole life, but you have to tell me the truth. I was a mistake, right? 
And he said, all right, fine, yes. And I go, Dad, I can't believe this. An hour later, I burst into the front door of our house. I'm like, Mom, Dad told me I was a mistake. And she's like, well, obviously, we're proud of you, and we're glad Oh my God, you're here. And it was a very funny thing. Mine was at a barbecue. <laughs> Was when I had that realization. Was I, that we were in our backyard, everyone's around. I was like, my mom had me at thirty nine, huh? And I'm her <laughs> only kid. Hey, mom! And same. She was like, a happy surprise is what we like yeah. to think of. That's in, amazing. In yeah, it's yeah. so funny because I had asked them a lot. Like every couple of years, I guess I'd be like, "Come on, it's pretty obvious." No, no, no. But yeah, the dynamic was really interesting because everybody had an interest in me. But for me, and through therapy, I've learned this, that basically no one listened to me, which is definitely the current state of things. Like I'm, I mean, academically the most educated, I'm the most traveled, all these things, but still hold 0.0% authority in my family, which is hilarious. So I just now sit back and I'm like, wow, it's really fascinating to watch the world burn. But Yeah. So that's kind of how the dynamic was. So meeting Mike was this chance to be listened to, to be respected, to be like, oh, right. And you're and we were creative. We we didn't know how to tap that creativity yet. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. We ended up playing in uh, EA Sports hockey was a big thing for us. And we because we both love sports. But like I made a fake magazine in which we would write these ridiculous stories about players that were in our minds, fake because they were in our league. Just for you guys? Did you share that yeah. with anybody else? I'm Thank God nobody else saw it. Like, if we ever wanted to kiss a girl, which we both did, we that would have ended it. I've heard that's really, really fun to do. So I'm glad yeah, that you were able to. It took a while, but it, it was fun. Well, I mean. Sometimes. So, okay. So you and Mike find in each other your like your creative your best friend but also like your creative best friend which right. is an important thing for people who end up being creatives and like finding our our people in in all of those spaces is really hard and usually it doesn't happen how did you find yourself from 13 to post university still writing cuz that's not very common either right a lot of people will i mean you were writing because you couldn't not it seems like when you were 13 yeah i mean initially i think i wrote because like when i look back i think the real reason i wrote is because i was fascinated by the idea of creating nothing or create <laughs> that's historically true but creating something from nothing and just there that i realized that was a magic trick then I learned that I could write poems for girls and they would run away screaming, which eventually I figured after humiliation figured out was a good thing. And then I now realize in some way I must have been writing because of such a calamitous home life to try to make order, plus the idea of desiring to be listened to. Yeah. Um, and Mike was never the writer. He was always, he was an artist, so he could draw, he could... He could paint. He could do all that stuff, which I was like, yeah. I have no interest in. I don't know how to do it. I don't even know what that is. Moving on, you know? Yeah. And so the way that our creativity would would present itself when we were young was just how do we make one another laugh? And so I remember we had a bunch of baseball cards, and we just took the players that, you know, the everyday players, and would just 
do autographs and just write funny stuff on them. Like, like on the card? Yeah. Like instead of signing, you know, like if you were to get the uh, a baseball card, somebody would be like, best wishes, Rick Manning. And we would just write just absurd things that would make us laugh. There, there was some like, there was just weird stuff that we would write on them. And that was hilarious. And that like made each other laugh, but also we were tr- always trying to one up each other on that in this way that was like, ah, oh, that's even crazier. Now I'm going to write this crazy thing. Yeah. You know? So were you, but so you're writing for, you were using Mike as your creative humor soundboard and you were writing to write and to be heard because the, the paper will never not listen to you, Adrian. Yeah. And like, well, when I think about it, I'm always like, man, if we would have had digital cameras, it would have been a different world for us. We were just, we were sort of friends right before camcorders became a thing that some families would have. I mean, even if you did, it, you know, you'd have to have tapes or whatever. But I, I have long thought that we would have made some pretty wild stuff that I would, I would love to exist. Oh, that's I mean, interesting that you'd yeah. want it to, because I feel like I am, fe- I am eternally grateful for the fact that my Sony Super 8 camera, not Super 8, what it was, a High 8 camera, like has been lost to the sands of time. And that no one will see anything that I created under the age of twenty, probably, right? Ever. So that's. But yeah. you want it. You want to know what's out. I mean, is there are there vestiges of the stuff you made at that age? Are they? Is it around? Yeah, there's one thing we did called the Wirt Chronicles, and if you look at a keyboard, like a QWERTY keyboard, you'll notice that Wirt W R T is there. But there was just this one time when we would meet up after school and write about this guy who wore a toenail vest and butt skin boots and we would just type as fast as we could and write down whatever we wanted and it just turned into the this thing and and we printed it out on these single sheets of paper because we were well we were typing directly on this and that's something that we had talked about in in the last three or four years we we're like man are, are are the work chronicles gone what a shame and when i think about it now like the work chronicles would just be like an adult swim cartoon in this era yeah, you know, they were that absurd and like oblique and self-referential and odd. So I do regret that we don't have those original terrible things to go, oh, my Lord, this is not to be seen by anyone. So the sands of time sucked it up, which is for the best. But you found success, right, at a young age, as I have from my extraordinary background history on you. You did win a contest in eighth grade, yes or no. Yeah, so that was, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what it was, but I know that there was an essay I'd written and not remembered, and then a teacher was like, hey, you're part of this group of four people who we are now going to elevate, and you're now like submitting to something. I, it's so interesting, because I have no real recollection of what the stakes were, or that like what I was trying to do. They just let me know that I was going to be doing this, and I was like, oh, that sounds fun. Okay. Do you remember at all what the the thing is that you wrote that you won? Like what the topic no, was or I don't remember. The only thing I remember writing when I was young is when I was 10 I wrote a short story about a ghostly island that my, that I still have somewhere my mom had held on to. Aww. And I got an A plus for this story about, you know, it's like on two sides of a piece of paper, just handwritten. Yeah, that was my first short story. I just I think it had to do with pirates, but I know there's ghosts. I'm always I'm a magical realist adjacent guy. So 
Yeah, I mean, you you were raised of a certain era where magical realism was the. I mean, you and I have talked about that before. It's like that the magical realism of our the movies of our youth were locked in hard. Yeah, Goonies, yeah. Field of Dreams. I could, I can go on, but like, yeah, they were all like, there's something spooky in our real world that is exists out there. So the so you you and Mike keep hanging out. High school, same place. Did you guys go to university together? No, we actually went to different high schools for the beginning of it. He went to a fancier high school and then and then came to my high school at a certain point. I don't remember the circumstances of that. I think he I think we were just so close that it was just like come to the same school. Yeah. And then that was fine. <laughs> Youth is wild cuz just re-exploring it now for this script I've just been like, "Oh man, what did what did we do? What did we think about? We just went to Denny's and uh Florissant is adjacent to Ferguson, Missouri. It's all sort of the part of that area of the world and all those I don't know, it's just a weird Missouri is a terrible, terrible state now. So it's really interesting being from there. I mean, Missouri is like, "Oh, I'm going to show you Alabama and Mississippi, what we're capable of. And man, it is a quickly dying state. There's always Florida. There's always Florida. Florida, though, feels like it's creative in its horror. <laughs> like, like Florida feels like it's like it's got a blog about itself. Missouri is just like, let's figure out the worst religious thing and how we can hate women oh the most God. and see where we can go with this. But yeah. So, oh, so did you feel like you had to escape that? Did you go, did you run away from Missouri then as a, like at 18? Did you go, where'd you go to school? Well, I went to the University of Missouri with Mike. I, so our freshman year, we went, we joined a fraternity together, which I think we both absolutely hated. And then within that loathing, I got the boot and then I left. So then Mike stayed. Left the frat or left school? What's that? Left uh, the frat he, or left he stayed. School. He stayed at the uh, fraternity and at the school. And then I went to Chicago to to Paul University. Mm. And that was sort of my launch. I was afraid to go to New York. Mike was like, Mike's much more stable and stable minded than I am. I'm much more like, well, what about what, what's this all about? What like what can I search out? And so I was afraid to go to New York, but I was willing to go to Chicago. And that was that was sort of the explosion of me as a creative how did you go from like being being intimidated by going as far as new york to now being a proper globe trotter like that's who you are that's how that's how i think you are perceived by friends and colleagues yeah i so mike left mizzou i think did he leave in his senior year but he went to the university of chicago so then we we re-intersected in chicago after a after a few years and it was really interesting because it was really rocky he had met a woman that he ended up marrying and sort of like everybody else fell away instantly so i was feeling rejection and his excuse was like yeah but we're getting married so everything's fine and we sort of I, i'm just going to tie this through him for a minute but basically while he was in that relationship and remains in that relationship and went through the like went through that and sort of created this, I, I don't want to say divorce between us, but there was just sort of like, oh, wow, friends drift. Interesting. <laughs> That's unexpected. Through that, 
as he stayed in Chicago and was with his wife, his now wife, I think that was a huge propulsion for me to be like, okay, well that's now I, now I get to go back to being unmoored and can go anywhere. And so in Chicago, I started working at a video game magazine as a writer and then uh, graduated through the ranks there. And everybody was like, oh man, you write totally insane, wild reviews of video games, of sports video games. Nobody else cares about sports. So this is even better. So you start writing these virtuosic video game articles about uh, what, like what year was that? Uh, I have no real concept of time, but I would say uh, I graduated college in 98. So that would have been like 98, 99, 2000. So what were like the, I guess the Madden franchise was in full swing. The 2K games franchise had just started? I think it was about to start. A big thing was Sony made a baseball game and they made a football game called game day and i crush those games and some like now i feel so funny sad funny like horrible about it because they were i the thing about maturity and growing up is you start to realize that there are people that make these games but when you're younger you're just like this is terrible how can i have the most fun destroying this that will entertain myself and hopefully other people and then you grow up and you're like, oh, these poor guys, they made this and they, and then you kind of come back around and you're like, well, it's not on the people who made it. It's on the, you know, the companies and the producers. So then you can, you can take some hacks, but you have to be a little more clever and you feel, you know, you just mature. But yeah, writing those reviews and I wrote a feature about Tony Hawk for Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. And that was sort of my big breakout at official PlayStation magazine because the, magazine had relaunched to be sort of a lifestyle magazine. So it was more fun and interesting. And so I wrote it from the perspective that I was meeting a video game character named Tony Hawk. I mean, I haven't read it in 15 years, but I still think it's a great story. Like I remember the opportunity to do it and how wildly creative I was being. I was just like, man, I'm taking some big swings here. I hope they don't hate it. But also, they're going to love it. I was so convinced <laughs> that it was great. And then they actually, my boss, who was very critical, especially based on my attitude about how I thought it was going to be great, was like, holy shit. Like, yeah, this is what we're trying to do here. So is that kind of like where that next chapter kind of took form, where you you were able to marry these things that you loved like all three things that you loved, right? I'm assuming you had a love of video games based on the fact that it was important to you and Mike to play. But you were able to marry games and sports and writing and creative writing, not just wrote like, I give it five out of four, you know, five stars and this game is right. good because the graphics are great. That is that the moment looking back where like grown up creative Adrian now can look back and see like, oh, this is when it started. This is where I became the creator that I am now. Yeah, because I I would say definitely, because I had written a few books in college that were just not good. I was trying to be Raymond Carver, and then in 1999, I read a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, and I was like, oh, so you can just do whatever you want. Really, if if I look back, I had to, for this, somebody, because of Literary Deathmatch, asked me to 
like say my favorite book of the 2000s and I looked back and pretty much every book that was like cementing in my life was published in 1989 and or, uh, 98 and 99 and that was just a colossal year for me to be like oh wow and Collision Theory my debut novel which came out in 2018 it took me 13 years to get that published from the moment I wrote it. So that was 2005 that I had, I had written that book. And that was very much just like this headlong, like write whatever you want, be creative, be wild. And the story, I don't, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know that I write in that same way now. I feel like getting beat down by life and things is, and just maturing as a writer makes you go like, oh, I'm going to take this lane, but I'm not going all the way into the lane where I'm not doing something I care about. But it is interesting how you veer towards a little more like, okay, I'm going to try to write something that people like more. Oh, that's but interesting. But in the end, yeah. Well, because so I just read Collision Theory to prepare for this epic conversation. And now that you mentioned the influences and that kind of vibe of, and I didn't realize you had written it, you know, you know, 14 years ago, like that comes through very clearly in retrospect, having you, having heard you say it, that it is this driving push. But then, you know, I've also gotten a chance to read your the draft of one of your features, and that's a much different type of storytelling. But it's it's interesting to see how kind of all of that creative pieces that made you the creator that you are and how they fit together as you have evolved. How did how did all those things come together? into also and then like throw performance in there because you're you've got this really weird collection of things that you do right you write the written page you write about video games you write novels and and movies and pilots and 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 across these medium but then you also have this like whole performative element did that happen at the same time or was that something you came to later like when did the whole getting on stage in front of people and sharing ideas yeah, so in 2000 or 2001, I created Opium Magazine, which was a literary humor journal. I started as a website, really just because I was like, I want to know more writers. I don't know enough writers. This way I can publish them and then I'll befriend them. So because of that, and that came off the back of Dave Eggers and McSweeney's, and there were just a lot of people that had created literary zines at the time that were online. I hate the word zines, but there we go. Finally said it. Live with the words that are given to you by the culture when they give exactly. them to you. And so when we would throw events, which was later in the process when we went to print and when we would have launch parties and all these kind of things, I would host and I was like, and I would do a really good job. I, there's one thing that separates me from most of the literary world that I, I'm just, this might come off as mean. I don't think it's arrogant, but people who host literary events are generally terrible and I am not. And even setting, you know, even if you're like a three out of 10, you're doing great. Most people just go up and they read a bio staring at a piece of paper. So when I was going up and I was having, I was being energetic, automatically people were like, oh, I sort of saw people waking up in the audience. I didn't know stand-up comedy was a thing you could do. I didn't, it wasn't something I was going to do because I felt like I was funny in my own way or whatever. But then as Opium Magazine sort of, not ran its course, but literary magazines are just a thankless, hard job. And the problem with them is the more successful you get, the more things you get to read. And when you, you know, it's like if you have two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. If you have a thousand short stories to read, it feels like you are not going to read. Yeah, I just botched that analogy intentionally. Through that, 
I started just diagnosing, living in New York, diagnosing what was happening in the literary world, saw hosts not being exciting, saw people go to readings, and instead of reading for the seven-minute time limit, they'd read for 15 or 20 minutes, and people would just be like, okay, we can't stop them. This is horrible. We're all trapped. And so that's where literary deathmatch came from, which was this idea of merging kind of institutional control plus having a performative element, plus like blending celebrities to judge literature just seemed like a dumb idea. And then the end of it, playing a game to decide the winner, like pin the mustache on Hemingway or a a literary spelling bee where you spell more and more complicated author names. And by doing that, I didn't even host the first few. It was uh, my girlfriend at the time and the other guy who helped us come up with the show. And, you know, they, they were funny and amusing, but they didn't have like the insane, um, anarchic energy that I eventually imbued. And through doing that, when you're doing a competitive show, but don't want anybody's feelings to get hurt, it's a really interesting balance. And what I realized is that was the joke for me that all my upbringing and all this, like my family, if you ever meet my family, it's basically just like us tearing into each other for a period of time until we leave. And as you get older, you're like, oh, I don't like being made fun of. That's not as much fun. But when you're young, you're just like, let's get it, you know? Um, it's great. And so I learned, I was like, basically, there was just this hilarious joke that nobody directly knew was happening, which was like, watch me do a competitive show in which nobody's feelings get hurt and the crowd is like losing their mind like it's the Super Bowl by the end. And how do I, it, it's like flying a kite, but like flying six kites at once and keeping them all up in the but, air. But I think it also is is really compelling as it relates to, like I am not of the literary world, right? I read books. I have friends who are writers. I have a shelf dedicated in my house to like friends' books. This will go on it. It's very exciting. I don't consider myself a writer and but but the the literary community as I as a layperson as a civilian find it very standoffish right it is like you described a place where you go and listen to somebody read their book and there's a quiet question and answer so like literary deathmatch seems like it is basically taking the piss out of that vibe of the community it also seems like the way you describe it sounds very wait, wait, don't tell me, and whose line is it anyway kind of vibe of these are competitions, but we don't really care. We're here to have fun, which anyone who didn't become a competitive Street Fighter player realizes that that's the point of games, right, is right. we are here to enjoy the process of being together. Did you go into it purposefully with that, or did you go into it trying to be another space for like the pretension of the literary world to find its feet. I think I went into it to be like, how do we just blow, blow everybody's expectations up? And how do you have people walk in the door to see what they think is a reading? And then they see the host is in a three piece suit and they're like, wait, and they're like, what, what's going on? (laughs) Oh, the lighting is, looks good. And wait, who's judging? Moby? Wait, I don't know where I am. (laughs) What is happening? And that was another part of the joke, you know, and the show is based, foundationally, it's based on a concept that we didn't go in with, but I sort of learned over the years, which was grateful enthusiasm. Mm. And like, there's no note of meanness in the show or me in terms of producing it or hosting it. Like, I'm just so excited to be there. And it's really this 
it comes back really to my mother, which is like my mom in the chaos of our lives was always able to balance like 70,000 things at once and try to make everybody feel good. So I'm really like, I'm like going forward with that energy and using her, that superpower she had and trying to like, you know, at the end when it all comes together and everybody's just like, what the just happened? I just don't even, I can't even, I can't even conceive of it. You know, it's Michael C. Hall of Dexter fame called it a highbrow, lowbrow literary game show clusterfuck. And that's wholly accurate. That seems, seems about right. I mean, that's what was, it was so much fun when, when you brought it through DC a couple of times and like the first time it was at the black cat, like was also not the place you would expect something like this to come from. So it's obvious to see how these, these influences are realized in these spaces and what it, what it provides to an audience that's not expecting or doesn't even know what to expect. Right. So that's, you are a, you have a fascinating puzzle, sir. Yeah. I mean, there is a thread though. Basically the thread is my mom loved me and made me feel like I could do anything. I had this best friend who got my jokes and who just thinks when we're together, we're just absolutely ridiculously hilarious to one another. And then through those two core elements, there became an ego of like, oh, I'm actually in a sense doing this probably, I don't, I don't know, but I think I'm just doing it to make, it's like most funny people are just trying to make their friends laugh. And what I've done is use the love and the desire to make other people laugh. And then just like, kind of stretched it, moved it and tweaked it until it's like, oh, people are, people are laughing. Cause I don't, I'm not saying all comedians are miserable people or any of that stuff, or they can't relax because there's a joke everywhere that they're like, oh, that's material. But through literary deathmatch and through my history and through having avenues to sort of, oh, I have this creative thing. I'm going to put that in this box. Uh, You know, I have several boxes to go forward with master and none definitely but but through doing that i i'm i think there's a lot of joy in what i'm doing i would love if somebody hears this and they're like you know what i need to uh, fund literary deathmatch if they need 1.2 million dollars i'm their guy or their gal thank you very much for writing it's interesting and then and like all this culminates sort of in mike working at ea sports later in his life cuz he went into the video game world i went more into the writing world and then he called me one day. He's like, hey, we're doing a Twitter system for Madden. Can you write a bunch of tweets as these six different NFL voices? Like, you know, and I was I wrote like 25,000 tweets, some as Skip Bayless. And all I did was like write one character who was just totally contrarian. And that was Skip Bayless. And the other ones had their like vague differences. Wait, hold on. So the job was, so this was like, the, they had they had installed in the game like a uh, on the uh, loading screen or whatever there were tweets about what was happening in the game yeah so after the game they'd be like oh wow he had four touchdowns and uh no picks this guy's on a rocket ship and then you'd see a tweet from skip bayless is like ugh four de- four touchdowns this week can't wait till he throws three picks next week and everybody hates him again you know so that was it and then marshall falk would say Wow, this guy is amazing. You've got to keep your eye on him. You know, and so, so I, Mike called you for that gig. Yeah, and so that got me into the EA like sort of slipstream. And then 
and then that went cold for a couple of years because they got rid of that. And then, uh, and then he called me. He's like, hey, you were writing this movie called Hold Me, Don't Touch Me based on a novel that you had written called Murder, Nevada. And you've been talking about it for a year or so. And send it to me. I just, I'm just curious. And I was like, oh, cool. That's really nice of him to ask. Then he read it. And he's like, okay, so get this. We're going to make a playable movie called Long Shot. And... I want you to write it, but you have to move to Orlando for for five months. And I was living in LA and I was struggling with, with literary deathmatch at the time. I was like, man, this is so much work. And I don't know, like, are we ever going to get a TV show? So I was like, okay, this pays way more money than I'm making. So I went there and the, the first two weeks of that process, he had his own idea about how the story would go, which changed radically, but it was largely the the key components stayed the same and we spent two weeks just shooting just shooting the shit and creating the story which was the funniest possibly the funniest two weeks of my adulthood because also we just hadn't been that close for a long time and so it's really interesting to see this sort of I don't want to say a fracture but you know, after after high school, we separated or went to college for one year, separated, but there was like an empathy and a, a love. We came back together. There was him finding his wife and then me feeling rejected. Then years later, we just sort of reassociated, but it, we were we never had a closeness in the same way. And then all of a sudden I was in Orlando in his office, just on a whiteboard writing the craziest stuff and just cracking each other up. And it was like, oh shit, like this is so interesting and how organic and easy it is. And then we ended up writing that and we got nominated for a WGA award, which was our goal, which was kind of interesting to be like, yeah, we're going to win an Oscar, which with the film that we've written that hopefully will be greenlit soon, we are going to win an Oscar for us or someone. So that's our plan at least. That's lovely. Like, that's just a really nice way for you guys to connect again. We are running on to the end of our hour, but I have two very, very quick questions to ask you that we ask everybody as we wrap up. The first being, does this version of your life, this 40-year-old Adrian Todd, does 13-year-old you, does it make sense to him? To 13-year-old me, no, but to 46-year-old me, yes. And in fact, by writing a script about being 13 and writing a script in the last month about literary deathmatch and the behind-the-scenes calamity of it, those it's really wild that I basically am like, oh, I'm, I'm on the same skis here, which I would have never thought. Yeah. But 13-year-old me would have just been like, I don't know, this is weird, but okay. And 46-year-old me is like, oh, wow, it's so wild that I came through all this and I lived. The the last question is then the parallel earth version of you at 46 that took a different path. Maybe you didn't meet Mike. Like what's parallel earth you doing? Uh, I mean, probably gas station, just like probably manager by now, you know, no manager, but I'm like the guy who's like, we pump the gas, you know, like a Sinclair style, but uh, an indie style. No, I, I, I really have no idea. It's so weird how life works. I, I just, I, I don't know. Being a, z- a zany dingbat, that would be maybe, but I don't know. So you can't get away from it, basically. Like that has yeah, to be a part of who you are. And I mean, Mike has been foundational. Universe. Mike's foundational in like making sense of it, and then also my success for the next six years will be 
like highly charged within the relationship with Mike, us re reconvening will be like, that will be very specifically something I can point to for the next 15, 20 years and be like, oh yeah, that was huge. So that's kind of cool. That is pretty spectacular. Well, thank you for, for spending this time with me. This was great. And next time, you know, you come through DC, there's always a home for literary deathmatch here at the garden. We'll always put it up. Cool. Well, thanks for doing it. If you were inspired by what we talked about today, you might be inspired by what our company, Building Momentum, does. We solve for impact. We're a creative problem-solving agency that helps people gain the confidence and permission to solve problems on their own using a whole variety of tools to do so. 3D printing, laser cutting, welding, empathy, facilitation, drones, uh, electronics, robotics, dance, podcasts. If you have a problem, like we all do, we would love to be a part of solving it with you. Find us on the web at www.buildmo.com. That's www.buildmo.com.